Welcome to the Upreneur Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Straub. The Upreneur Podcast is in partnership with Score Broward, which is a nonprofit that's been helping entrepreneurs and small business owners start, develop, and grow their businesses for more than 52 years. The Upreneur Podcast and Score, we interview influential entrepreneurs and executives here in Florida about their success. We'll gain insight into their lives, the struggles they've faced, how they've overcame, and advice they can give to people that are starting a business or getting into their industry. So if you own a business in Florida or you're thinking about starting one, this podcast is for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Youpreneur. I am here with Senior Vice President and Managing Partner Gopal Raji Gowda from the Related Companies. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, happy you're here. Why don't we start out with talking a little bit about the related and just a little bit about the company. We don't got to go too much in the history, but just for uh, those that are sitting there going, what is the related? Yeah, so related companies started about 50 years ago by, by our chairman, Stephen Ross, and is a vertically integrated real estate company that has offices globally. I actually lead the office in West Palm Beach. Our office is called Related Southeast. And uh, my focus is on mixed-use development. So, Gopal, when, when we were talking earlier for the, the pre-call, what's interesting about the model set up as related is you have this entrepreneurial tilt to the managing partners where you're kind of running your own businesses. You know, you're, you're part of it, but um, it is a big, large organization. Can you just talk a little bit and kind of go back based on where you went to school, where you got your master's from? A lot of people with your background would have ended up on Wall Street or trying to start their own tech company or getting involved in uh, some business completely on their own. How'd you end up getting your entrepreneurial spirit and actually satisfying it inside a larger organization? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, so to, so to go a little bit into my background, I graduated from Cornell University undergrad, graduated in 2000 with a degree in, in mathematics. I was actually pre-med. My father's a doctor. I've, I've got two brothers. Uh, he was hoping that all three of us would be doctors, but Unfortunately, that didn't happen. <laughs> so I was pre-med and um, actually right out of Cornell, I got recruited to Wall Street. So I worked at Lehman Brothers for two years on Wall Street and sort of to your point, had the itch of wanting to do something more entrepreneurial. And I had always been fascinated by architecture and design and thought to myself, hey, maybe real estate's an interesting, uh, interesting place to, to, to learn and, and, to, and to see if that's a, that's a sector that I could work in. So I started looking around for jobs in real estate and realized that without any real estate background in, in, uh, in Wall Street, it was difficult to do. So what I, what I ended up doing was applying to grad school at Columbia, ended up getting into the real estate program at Columbia University, the development program, was there for it's an 18-month program, 18 months. And while I was there, I ended up actually working with Source Real Estate Partners on the private equity side, and then got recruited to Related after I graduated in 2004. So I think what was interesting is, is I didn't really expect myself to be in the development business. I had a finance background and felt like maybe, you know, maybe the number side of the world was more where I would land. But slowly as I got into Related, I realized to your point that Related was made up of a bunch of senior level entrepreneurs that were effectively kind of leading development deals and businesses on their own within the umbrella of a larger company. So that was pretty intriguing and, and, and related is, was set up that way by Steve Ross to set up you know, local partners in different areas of the country and the world to be able to lead businesses. So because of that, it is a very, very entrepreneurial business. 
in the sense that different partners lead different developments and, and different business units across the company. When he started that, I know he started in the 70s, was that a newer model for the development industry or was that just a way for him to be able to scale to come up with that model of having kind of partners in each territory that have some skin in the game? I mean, I think, I think part, of, part of one of the things about real estate that's, that's very clear is that real estate's a local business, right? So in order to create depth in a larger company and, and be able to have reach, right, you need to have people locally on the ground in real estate. So, so while, while Stephen you know, was in New York City and developing in New York City, he himself, and I'm just imagining, he himself could not be in all of these locations like California and Miami and Chicago and other areas across the country, right? So I think he was able to achieve that by establishing partnerships in each one of those locations that allowed him ultimately and, and the related companies to, to expand the breadth and depth of the company. Well, and, and, and I know one of your first kind of ventures off into uh, another market was you doing Vegas and doing the Cosmopolitan, which I'm sure most people are, are aware of, which I want to spend some time in a little bit. But first, I kind of, I want to get a sense. There's a lot of people that start to look at real estate when they either start making money or they're trying to get into an entrepreneurial, uh, whether it's a side hustle, whether it's, you know, trying to start a business for themselves. After or before 2008, people obviously found it a sexy spot to be in. And so any advice you would give to someone that does have that entrepreneurial spirit and thinks real estate might be a place for them to go, any advice that you would give to that person? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think first things first, you know, real estate is a broad industry, right? I mean, you have the brokerage side of the business, you have the private equity side of the business, you have the debt and financing side of the business, you have the asset management side of the business, you have the side of the business I'm in, which is the development side of the business. So I think, I think step number one is trying to figure out where you want to be and what category you sort of want to tackle. Because like anything in any business, I think you, know, you build expertise by spending a lot of time and a lot of effort studying a specific sector within an industry, right? So what I would say to young entrepreneurs interested in the development business is have patience. You know, it's one of the things that I think when you're, when you're young and you're smart, you kind of you want to uh, climb, the, climb the totem pole as fast as possible and get to the top. And the reality is, as those of us who know have been in business for, for many, many years, th that's not how things work, right? So you have to have patience. You got to be a sponge. You got to be willing to learn new things. And that's, that's a difficult thing, right? I mean, it's, if you have a skill set in something, it's easy for you to understand it. It's easy for you to speak about it. Uh, it's easy for you to transact in that in that in that specific skill set. But when you start going outside of your skill set, right, it's very difficult initially. But once you kind of tap in and you spend the time, it really broadens your horizon and your skill set skill set, and makes you a more well-rounded person. So I don't know if that fully answered the question, but I think my advice would be: be patient, be open-minded, be courageous, and realize that. If you work hard, right, and you really have a passion for something, ultimately things will fall, fall into place. What about on the flip side of that? Any bad advice that you hear people getting into development? Maybe it's their first project. Maybe that they got asked to be an investor in it. Maybe they're thinking that they can be able to start moving that industry. Is there some bad advice you hear regarding the development, the development side of the real estate industry? I haven't heard a lot of bad advice. I, I just think that, you know, development is such a, such a complicated subject, right? Because there's so many different angles to it, as you pointed out, right? There's the investment side, there's the design and visioning side, right? There's the construction side, and there's ultimately the asset management side, right? So, so I, I think that 
you know, if you're going to get into development, make sure that you understand all aspects before getting involved in it. Yeah. So in, in your first, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but your first uh, kind of project that you kind of spearheaded was that Vegas project in Cosmopolitan. I remember when it opened up, it just felt a lot different than normal Vegas properties. Can you talk yep. a little bit about how you kind of mirrored that already existing marketplace with a, a different creative tilt to it? And then you trying to take what you learned around other people to really you, you starting to spearhead a project. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, so that, so you're all right. I mean, that was sort of the, the biggest hospitality project that I sort of cut my teeth on. I mean, that's a, the, the Cosmopolitan Resort and Casino in, in Las Vegas, which is now owned by Blackstone. That's a six and a half million square foot resort with nine star chef restaurants, 150,000 square feet of retail, a spa, a nightclub and a day club. 100,000 square feet. You uh, cut your teeth on such a small project. <laughs> well, well, I guess this kind of, you know, interestingly enough, ties into our subject around, you know, entre- you know being an entrepreneur because I was very lucky because I was working with a partner at the time of the company who was sort of the, the partner in charge of all the hospitality development for the company. And I really learned hotels to this gentleman uh, who's really been a fantastic mentor in, 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 my, in my career. And when we got to Vegas, we, we investigated this project and we, and we loved it. It was sort of sort of the kind of project related likes to do. It's mixed use, it was dense, it's very complicated, involved hospitality, involved curation to position the retail and the F&B, all the things that we like doing. We, we, we tend to like complicated projects. It sort of, sort of turned out that way, right? So, you know, I mean, on, on that project specifically, we ended up in Vegas. We ended up actually being the fee developer for Deutsche Bank, uh, who was the owner at the time. Of course, it was an interesting time period because it was right after the Great Recession had hit or was, was hitting, I must say. And we had this you know, amazing opportunity to kind of lead the development of this massive project that had a half an acre hole in the ground, right? So it hadn't gone vertical, but they wanted us to take it over. And effectively we said, hey, we'll take this over as a fee development, but we're gonna have to totally rethink it, reposition it, redesign it as it's being built vertically and try to position it for what we think is successful in the market. And I remember to your point, you know, speaking with a lot of people in Las Vegas at the time who had been in Las Vegas for a long time and maybe worked at some of the more traditional resorts that have been there for a long period of time thinking, you know, there's no way the New York guys are going to come in and, and do something really successful here. You know, we, we have the model that's worked forever. And, and quite honestly, I mean, we use the model that we use it related, right? We, we think out of the box, we curate, we brought a lot of New York and international brands in that were already not on the strip. And we thought about, we thought about it as a visitor, right? We said as a visitor, when I come to Vegas, what do I want? Right. I want that excitement. When I walk in the door, I want great amenities I want great energy. I want great rooms. We happen to be in a location that was phenomenally positioned in between the Bellagio and MGM City Center. So all the views going north were of the Bellagio Fountain in the Strip, right? All unobstructed. So it was it was sort of this very, very unique uh, sense. But I got really lucky to be able to have that opportunity and be able to think freely and creati- creatively about how hospitality can sort of inspire sort of the guest experience. And... Um, you know, thanks for the compliment because uh, because I think you know even even to this day, Cosmopolitan is still one of the rate leaders on the strip. So. No, it's, yeah. it's one of my favorite. Pro- I used to have offices in Henderson and Summerlin, and so but I'm okay. Cosmopolitan uh, when I was there, so I have an affinity to the property uh, when I'd be in town, which was like every three or four weeks. You mentioned before that you were you were um, fortunate to have a mentor uh, in that hospitality space. Can you just talk a little bit about how mentors have impacted you in your career and any advice you might be able to give the listeners about how to even find mentors or seek out mentors? Yeah, that's a great question and a very 
A very important question. You know, again, I've been with Related 16 years, so I you know, started in 2004. Sometimes I can't believe when I say that, how fast the time has gone by, but maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah, I feel a little older, but, you know, still, still pretty young. So that's good. We're the same age. So we're, not <laughs> we're, we're, we're the same age. Yeah. So, so we're young guys, right? So, yeah. um, but I mean, I think that, you know, when I say 16 years and I think to myself, wow, 16 years, but you know, the time has gone by so fast. So to me, it makes me feel like I've been so passionate, engaged and uh, been in, involved with, you know, and been grateful to be involved with such great opportunities that have allowed me to learn and grow through this industry. And I would not have been able to learn and grow through this industry without multiple phenomenal mentors at the related companies, some of whom still, still lead you know, major divisions there and are my partners now, up to the chairman of the company, Steve Ross. And, and um, it's just been instrumental, right? Because I think that when you're growing, right, you don't really know what you don't know, right? But if you do have a mentor that can explain things to you, inspire you, push you, that mentor is only really looking for you to be the best form of yourself, right? And I don't know, you know, like I think doing it on your own and, and I don't have any experience with doing it on my own because I have had such great mentors. I just don't know how that's even possible, right? To be able to sort of push yourself on your own and uh, be able to navigate to bring the best out of, out of you without that mentorship. So I can't speak more highly about my mentors. And I think that for any young person in an entrepreneurial role or not, or within a company, Seek out mentors as soon as you can and try to learn from them, shadow them, be a sponge around them, be useful, right? Because I mean, you know, there might be some work that needs to be done that no one wants to do, but, you know, maybe you'll do the work because it gets you closer to this, this mentor type individual that's going to help you grow as an individual. Yep. You know, you know, I always recommend people have a mentor inside your company. If you're working for a larger company that is already kind of where you want to be, it can give you some direction. Look for people outside of your company that can give a different perspective to be able to mentor from. And then, you know, every so often take the take the money and actually hire a coach, hire somebody that is actually paid to do it. But I think the key parts of the mentors, at least what I found is, is I, I don't have it in perpetuity. I ask them to be, you know, can you help me for six months, once a month for six months, 30 minutes, I'll send an agenda of what I'm looking for. You need no prep work. Just take, you know, just give me advice and perspective on the couple things I want. And I found that most people, even successful people, will be willing to take the time if they don't think it's this forever piece to it. Even if it's just a cup of coffee once to be able to pick their brain or a Zoom once to pick their brain. Yeah, no, and, and I love your comment about look for inspiration outside of your industry. I mean, I think that's, that's something that I have sort of done over my career that has allowed me to develop in a very unique way and something that I continue to do is, and I continue to surround myself with friends, you know, listen to podcasts, read books, uh, learn about things that aren't inherently about real estate, right? Interestingly enough, what we do and what we do in terms of real estate development and, and effectively what I explained to you is we're, we're building neighborhoods now. We're not just building individual buildings. And when you build neighborhoods, there are so many elements of what it takes to build what I call a healthy community, right? And I feel so fortunate because I need to sort of learn about the world around me and learn about things like public space, right? In today's day and age, public space is vital. I think if there's one thing we've learned through COVID being sort of locked up in quarantine, it's, it's having access to great parks and public space and having walkability. Uh, you and I live in Florida, walkability with shade and all that kind of thing is, is <laughs> critical, right? <laughs> right. You know, how do you inspire the public through culture? Arts and culture. I mean, I, I work with a lot of artists. Um, arts and culture is a major component of how uh, my creative process flows when I'm developing and master planning major neighborhoods. Experiences, whether they're on the retail side, 
thinking about what's happening in retail and the experiential retail side. Or one thing that's near and dear to my heart is food and chefs and the idea of culinary and how chefs are artists as well, right? And they bring this special energy to these environments. The project you've been working on right now uh, was the old City Place that you guys rebranded Rosemary Square. And City Place came out and it was, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong on the years, but it's called 20, 30 years ago. And it was the beginning of those lifestyle centers where kind of everything's in one place to do it. And is, you know, I, I've seen, and I remember being early on, or at least a few years ago, it's probably 10 or 15 years ago, two people starting to redefine what city planning was looking like. And the flight from suburbs kind of back to the metro areas and building out these neighborhoods. I used to live in Boston. I love that Boston had like these little ethnic neighborhoods. I lived in the North End and that was such a, a cool experience for me living in these kind of neighborhood fields coming from a suburb in Pennsylvania where I was at. Can you just talk about how you're taking this, this creative side that typically wouldn't be associated with real estate development? And you're bringing in the real estate development because you're saying, I'm looking at artists, I'm looking at chefs, you know, stuff that normally isn't going along with I'm building an office building and an apartment building, right? You're, yeah. you're, you're putting a whole twist into it to one, I'm sure to differentiate, but two, because you're trying to create a space and, and redefine what a city might look like from how it was beforehand. And, and I'm just curious on how you're combining this creative side to the actual typical development business and how you even started to head down this path? Yeah, no, it, look, it's, it's, it's a great question. You point something out, you know, that I think is, is unique in what we do as related companies and, and how we develop mixed use properties. And, and by the way, the amount of expertise and the diversity of expertise you need to be able to develop these neighborhoods, right? Because to your point, if you're building an individual office building in a downtown, you need to know how to build office buildings, right? which are, you know, the more simple asset, not to simplify anything, but the more simple asset class within the world of real estate development versus hotels or medical offices or hospitals, right? Or even, you know, mixed-use residential buildings, right? So I think, look, I mean, I, I feel like I've been lucky because even before getting into real estate, and I, and I told you that I sort of, young, very young, I was into sort of architecture and design and thought, hey, you know, because I'm into this, maybe I'll, maybe I'll enjoy real estate. I sort of found myself following my passion and tickling my creative bone, I guess, getting into development because in development, you have to be creative, right? Development, the development business, the real estate business is about creativity, but the development business is all about creativity, right? And I think that, you know, it, because it's so local, you need to understand the aspects that are going to make something vibrant. But to talk a little bit about Rosemary Square, because you, you brought it up, which, as you said, is a reimagination of a project called City Place, which opened in 2000. So you weren't too, too far off. You're you pretty close 20 years ago it opened. But what's interesting was City Place, even at that time, and you probably remember it because you were here locally, was very pioneering, right? To be able to take 72 acres of, of land in the middle of a downtown and say, hey, we're going to invest $600 million at that time and totally redevelop the, the face of the downtown. And we're going to add walkability and we're going to add you know, a department store and we're going to add retail and entertainment and all of this stuff was very pioneering. In fact, you know, there's an interesting data point that you can, you can think about. Lifestyle centers were really just emerging in the country in the early 2000s, late 90s. By 2002, I think there were about 20 lifestyles in the country. By 2004, there were 130 plus, right? But very few of them were smack dab in the middle of a city. Because if you were a lifestyle developer, a lifestyle center developer, and you said, hey, I want to develop a lifestyle center, and you had to privately buy the land, you weren't going to be able to buy 72 acres of land in the middle of a downtown, right? So, so again, one of the things we do is 
very well, and, and we've done multiple times in multiple states and countries, is public-private partnerships. We partner with governments and you know, usually acquiring or co-developing large swaths of lands in downtowns in partnership with governments to make those economic engines for those downtowns, right? What have you seen the trends in the government, those city governments now looking for? Have you seen a change in the last 10, 15 years of how they're thinking about the downtown? Or do you feel like you as a developer is actually changing their mind and giving them a sense of what it's looked like as opposed to vice versa? Yeah, I think that, I mean, look, things evolve and life evolves. And tied into what I said earlier, I think the notion of public space is something that is top of mind. And, and I had, you know, previous to, to reimagining Rosemary Square, which I'll tell you a little bit about the public realm reimagination there, which is really interesting. You know, I lived in New York City for 20 years and I saw sort of the birth of the High Line on the west side of Manhattan and what that did to the west side of Manhattan. And of course, our flagship development, Hudson Yards, anchors the north end of that development and the south end is anchored by the Whitney Museum. I think that's a great example of how public space can totally revitalize a part of the city that needed revitalization and also become a place for the public to be proud of and utilize publicly, right? For all, right? It's inclusive, it's diverse, it's really open to all. And I think, you know, look, we, we did something similar at Rosemary Square. We, we hired a public realm company from Copenhagen called GEL, G-E-H-L, that was started in the 70s by a guy by the name of Jan GEL that all he wanted to do is study uh, public space in Copenhagen, as you, as you know, Copenhagen is, is, is listed as one of the sort of the higher quality of places to live in the world. So yeah. we brought in the Gell team and we said, hey, okay, how do we take this you know, amazing project that was developed 20 years ago and the world has changed? I mean, in fact, 20 years now feels like 50 or 100 years given right. the pace of change. I, I, don't, I don't even know if uh, it used to be called Moore's Law. I mean, there must be some, some new law, you know, in terms of the pace of change due to technology, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm not even joking. You know, when, we, when, when City Place was developed, they didn't, Wi-Fi wasn't invented. We didn't even have iPhones. Can you imagine leaving home without an iPhone? I mean, yeah. you'll go back home and get it, right? So, so we had to rip up the streets and put fiber in and all that. So I knew we wanted to sort of think about what does it mean to be a city in a downtown of the future? And the first thing we did was, all right, let's get the public spaces right. Because if this is a place that is walkable, comfortable, and exciting and flexible, it's a place where people are going to want to live, work, and play. So when you come here and you see kind of what we've done on Rosemary Avenue, which is the main north, north south corridor that goes through the project, we went curbless on the streets and it's very lush and comfortable. And we have a square in the middle that was formerly the city place plaza that, that's interactive with an interactive water pavilion, but can also use, be used for events and discussions and all those kinds of things. So look, I, I think to answer your question about how cities are thinking about what's important, I think probably the two things that come top of mind are public space that can be utilized by all. And for me, something that I'm very excited about uh, is really how do you drive culture, right? And drive sort of a public art program, which we're doing in a big way in West Palm too. And so how, how are you starting the kind of, because I mean, obviously the public space, you don't make any money on, right? You buy the land, but you have to keep it open, but, but it, it could be seen, I guess, as a driver for people wanting to live there. But then also from the art side, is it partnering up with the local artists or the city to build cultural centers or to, or to put in studios for artists? How do you start to, I guess, hit in the areas that typically aren't considered either profitable or as from a developmental perspective, areas that most people want to spend time in? So on the, on the first subject, I mean, your point about public space being something that's, that's not revenue accretive, right? It's something you just do. I think you need to think about it differently, right? It, you know, it, and that is, if I don't create the environment and the place where people want to spend 
long periods of time, the project's not gonna be revenue creative, right? It's not gonna be a place where people wanna spend time and the foot traffic will be high and the retail and the restaurants will be full and, and it'll be a place where I wanna work or I wanna live or I wanna stay at a hotel, right? So, so that's why I think it's really important to focus on those things. And you know, sometimes you do have developers who say, hey, you know, we're not gonna spend any money on the landscape or the public space around the building, but we're gonna spend money on the building alone. I mean, to me, that's a big miss, right? Because you're missing a critical component of what makes a development, even a single building or a neighborhood development vibrant. So I think that's topic number one on the public space. On the art side, look, I mean, we have a major public art program at Rosemary Square and sort of have created a sort of manifesto, I guess, around arts and culture being central to the Rosemary Square experience. And our whole thing is we wanted to create as many free, diverse, inclusive public art experiences as possible, right? It's one thing when you go into a museum and you see a great piece of artwork on the wall, right? That's why you go to museums, right? Because museums have incredible collections of art that you otherwise, you know, the common person couldn't own, right? So we love this notion. And by the way, community is a big part of our formula too, right? We want the community to embrace these neighborhoods. We want the community to think of the neighborhoods as their own. We want community to infuse in with the retail and F&B experiences, right? So, you know, our model is by building a vibrant neighborhood that's embraced by community, it's valuable for everyone involved. So tying in the arts and culture piece, right? If, if, if I can bring world-class artists to the public realm, that means that people will come to visit, experience, and have a great time there. You can come to Rosemary Square and experience the public art program and not buy one thing. We love that. Now, we hope you go in and buy things. We hope you go to the retail. We hope you go to the restaurants. But I think by default, when you fall in love with a place, you want to support it, right? I think there's this sort of higher level notion of, of letting all be able to access things that inspire and pique curiosity and that, and that drive, you know, hopefully inspire and drive, drive people to do great things. So as you talk about the reimagination in neighborhoods, talk a little bit about where you get the inspiration and ideas for your formula. You mentioned a little bit about, you know, kind of your formula of how you're building this through. A lot of people that are starting businesses, whether it's in the development side or not, are constantly trying to figure out is, you know, say what problem are you trying to solve for? But what is the, what is their differentiator? What is their unique pieces to their business or their project? Can you just talk a little bit about how you start to figure out that formula? Where does that inspiration come from? Where do the ideas come from? And even you talk about, you know, I'm going to double down in public space. I'm going to double down in the arts. I'm really going to be able to drive this public uh, private partnership to be able to create what the city wants to and what we think the city needs. You mentioned the formula. Talk a little bit about how you even start to come up with those ideas and differentiators. Yeah. Yeah. Again, again, a really good question. And I think it takes years and years of experience, right? It didn't, it didn't just happen to me. I didn't, I didn't wake up one day and say, Hey, this is a, I'm going to come up with all these great ideas. I think an interesting topic that probably, you know, applies to entrepreneurs everywhere is, is the topic of curiosity. And I think that it's important to be curious, to create great things and alongside being curious, being courageous, right? Because there are a lot of things that I have learned in my life that I didn't know anything about. If you asked me 20 years ago, sort of, you know, about arts and culture, you know, of course I knew, I knew things, you know, I'd studied some art history and knew some stuff, but I had, I, you know, I had not really delved into the world of, of collecting and, and you know, understanding artists and meeting with artists, understanding the importance of an incredible uh, socially interactive public, public art installation, right. That, that drives people to places. Right. So I think that for me and my path, it really had been taking myself outside of my comfort zone 
and getting to know other creatives in other fields that were experts in other fields, whether they were architects, designers, public realm specialists, like the, the group Gell that I had mentioned, people in the retail world that are doing experiential retail, people on the food and beverage side, the chefs, right? I mean, these are all creatives that do amazing work in their own fields that in turn add valuable pieces to our society and culture and communities, right? So in my mind, I said, okay, if I can really learn from these amazing creatives and then get them as part of my team, we all could work together to create something that's spectacular, right? So that's really how the process worked and the process is working. And, and I always call everyone I work with a partner. When I sign a lease, I don't sign a lease in the traditional days of, of how you know, it used to be done in a mall where you know, mall people used to sign leases, hand over the keys and say, okay, I don't want to talk to you in 10 years, right? If I talk to you, something's wrong, right? In my mind, those days are over, right? It's all about partnership. It's all about communication. And it's all about inspiring both sides and, and communicating so that both sides understand what the end goal is. And if the end goal is to create this amazing community, right, that's infused with public space, great arts and culture, great experiences, density, live, work, play density, some of the best buildings, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into sort of what's happening on the wellness side of buildings. Wellness is a category that we spend a lot of time on, right? Uh, and wellness is a sense of being, a state of being. Doesn't necessarily mean you know having being able to you know have a have a fitness approach, which we have as well. So, and, and I, I love kind of where you where you went with that was you you looked at development as a creative piece, but then you tapped into creatives from other industries to try to get inspiration from, and then realized you know listen I can't just take their ideas and go run with it. I got to look at these people as partners to be able to bring in and help me redefine where I'm looking at my vision for, and for this case, it's at Rosemary Square, but whatever the project is you as an entrepreneur are working on. You talked about being curious and courageous. As you look back in the last six months in this, this COVID environment, what have you changed your mind about? How have you started to think differently based on anything? Has it changed any of your, your hypothesis of how you're building and thinking about neighborhoods? Has it changed anything you're thinking about the development side or even you know, on a personal entrepreneurial perspective, did it get you to change your mind on how you're looking at certain things as a, a business owner or a successful entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, look, I mean, I mean, you know, it would be naive to say that that COVID has not sort of impacted all of us, right? right. No one I know, either older or younger than me, has ever gone through anything this global as the pandemic, as the COVID pandemic, uh, and had this much of an impact on so many things. You know, I think one thing that I think a lot about is, is well, a couple, couple things, a couple things. I think, I think, number one, your question was, has it really impacted the way we develop or any of my sort of thoughts around development? Has COVID really impacted that? And I think, I think one thing I've realized, and, and look, I mentioned to you that we've been, we've been working on this reimagination of city place in the Rosemary Square for five years now. So it's been, you know, time in the making. And, you know, these developments take a long time, but you know, that whole notion of public space being vital. You know, we felt passionately about it and we still feel passionately about it. But I think in a post-COVID world, it's probably something that governments and individuals are, are understanding even more. Because like I said earlier, when we were all in quarantine, what's the only thing you could do? You can go to the park, go for a run or go for a walk, right? And that was so valuable to get out of the house and be able to do that, right? And, and, and you know, we had that in, in our environment. But I think if anything, um, what COVID has taught me and sort of emphasized to me being a real estate developer today is a you know we should never never take anything for granted right that we have in this life and b community connectivity 
and you know, personal interaction and inspiration is vital to our well-being. You know, and I don't know about you, but you know, me being cooped up in quarantine for two months and it was a tough time, man. You know, like I, you know, of course, I, you know, I just got married a, a month earlier, so it was fantastic. I got to spend uh, quarantine with my wife right away, which is great. We love being together, but I miss my team. I miss going to restaurants. I miss my friends. I miss, I miss experiencing things. I miss going to galleries. I miss you know, doing the things that we take for granted, right? So, so if anything, the work we do, I believe, is going to come back stronger than ever post-vaccine. And I'm incredibly excited about it. You know, I'm incredibly excited. I, I'm incredibly excited about hospitality. Hospitality is one of the things that, you know, inspired me in this business and still is a main tenant in the way that I develop, right? Being hospitable is a key piece of how we build these neighborhoods. And I think that hotels are going through incredibly hard time right now. As you know, occupancy is tough, right? Because tourism and travel is way down. But I think once this vaccine comes out, people are going to be blazing back to travel around the world and get inspired and see things and you know so on and so forth so. yeah people are thriving i was at a dinner last night and there was a couple next to me they probably were in their 70s or 80s actually it was two couples and they, they said one thing to me you could tell they wanted to talk because they haven't been out in a while and the, I mean, the restaurant was full the bar was full this is in fort lauderdale and um i joked and i said something i have the antibodies don't worry about it they all wanted to like shake my hand and just be like, oh, we're so happy we can get closer to somebody, talk to somebody. And they actually literally wanted, and I, I thought they were joking. They wanted to shake my hand because I'm, you know, I have PTSD. I'm not allowed to shake anybody's hand right now. And like literally they all wanted to shake my hand. And, and I'm sitting here going, people are, are just completely seeking out this personal connection and are looking for it. And it made me start to feel real bullish about what this is going to look like once the vaccine's done. You start thinking about 20s came after um, you had the Spanish flu. Are we going to be in this environment where everybody wants that connection so bad that projects like yours and that that are creating people in this community to want to be together? Is it just going to be thriving at that point? And the idea that downtowns are going to be a place that people want to be because they want to be around people. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think so. And, and you look, in terms of development, um, I didn't touch upon something that I think we, we believe at Related were we're a leader in, and that is, you know, thinking about how to integrate wellness into our buildings and into our environments. And I'm, I'm, I'm building a building right now uh, that was under construction pre-COVID. And luckily, you know, since uh, construction was deemed essential, we, we kept building the building, you know, during the quarantine, which is fantastic. It's going to open May of next year. It's called 360 Rosemary. It's a 300,000 square foot class A office building right adjacent to the Brightline train station in West Palm Beach. And it's just a fantastic state-of-the-art building. And, and even pre-COVID, we were thinking about things like destination dispatch. So which means you walk into your elevator through a turnstile, you don't even touch a button through your phone. It knows what floor you're going. You walk into the elevator, you're touch, everything's touchless, right. right? All of the faucets, all of the doors, every, everything is touchless in our building. We've used antimicrobial materials on every touch point in the building. We have state-of-the-art air filtration in the building. We have indoor and outdoor green spaces. We have, you name it, right? So hands-free parking, you, you know, you name it. So I do think that technology and wellness are going to be of utmost focus moving forward uh, in a post-pandemic world. And I think that, you know, some of these older buildings are going to have a hard time, you know, figuring out how to, how to sort of adapt to the, to the new world. I think, I think world-class companies are going to look for state-of-the-art brand new buildings to protect their greatest asset. What's their greatest asset? Their employees, yep. right? 
So, mm-hmm. so I think safety and, and wellness and all those kind of things that we've been, we were thinking about pre-pandemic and, you know, in projects like Hudson Yards. And now, you know, I'm integrating into all of my projects here in the Southeast. And I'm sure every smart developer is integrating into everything to do that. That's going to be inter- an interesting category and sector to watch because there's a lot happening technology-wise around, around wellness and safety within Bill. Yeah, no, no, I would agree with you. I mean, you're getting individual employees now, and it's everybody. They're just caring more now about their health. They're worried about their immune systems. They want to make sure they're working out just so they don't get sick. And they're expecting to be able to have that in, in one place. As people go back into the office buildings, they're not going to want to walk away from the habits, a lot of the good habits that people have put together during this period where people are working from home. And I think the technology side is kind of a... a, a an ante to get in the game and then it will be for those that get there first. I think uh, people won't be in another building. So I mean, I know you just got married, but I remember I, I had my uh, second child and the technology that changed from one kid to another kid, four years, I had a bassinet that literally would tell me when the kid's crying, it would start to shake a little bit to put the kid to sleep. And then it would go to a point going, oh, the kid's not stopping crying. Now you got to go in. It would ping me when I had to go in and pick up the kid. So I think we're getting used to this idea that every aspect of our life is going to have the top level of technology going through, although that might scare some people. I think we get used to the uh, the comfort and, and what it creates to make life easier. And I think buildings probably are, are not going to be any different. Last two questions for you. And sure. about you uh, as an individual, as an entrepreneur, do you have any favorite failures? Something you look back in your career that said, you know what, this was a... a Something for me that, you know, I learned a bunch more. I, you know, I know nobody wants to call it a failure anymore because you learn from it and you're like, you wouldn't want it any other time. But was there any, you know, setbacks in your career that were impactful to you that is worth sharing? I, you know, I was going to answer that, you know, I, I don't, I don't sort of use the word failure, you know, within my team and sort of in my process, because a lot of the things that I believe we need to do are experimental and being, as I said earlier, courageous and testing things. And, and while some may consider failures failures, to your point, I think yeah, a learning, learning experience is a learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's a learning experience. Look, I, I think that I, I think I think one thing, and look, I, I wouldn't say this is necessarily a failure, but it you know it ties back to a point that I made to you earlier, and I think that is the word patience comes to mind. You know, I think I think in my younger ages and younger years, and maybe you know this happens to a lot of young smart people wanting to get places fast without really enjoying the process and the journey, you know, because I can now look back at 16 years of my career and say, wow, that was an incredible process and journey. And yes, I was incredibly impatient along the way. And thank God I didn't explode along the way. And thank God that I, I was sort of, I had mentors to guide me along the way to say, hey, you know, it's going to take you a while, but make sure you just keep working on this and, and you'll get it right. Right. So I think, I think one of the things, it, maybe it's not a failure, but it was a misconception early that you could sort of get to the result you needed to get to fast without going through a patient process and enjoying the journey. And, and look, life is all about the journey and the process, right? And it's yeah. about the people you interact with. And to me, that's what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about interacting with smart, innovative people that allow me to do incredible things, right? And, and working in teams. It was, um, I was in Hawaii and I'm going to screw up the name of this road. It was like the road to Haku or Hiku or whatever it is. And it's this six hour drive on a dirt road. And I was so excited to get to the end. And I realized it wasn't about the whole end. The road and the drive was the whole reason people told you to do it. And I was so stuck on getting the end. I actually did appreciate the drive going through. And it was, it was probably three or four years of my career. And I remember telling the story to a mentor and 
He's like, uh, you, you're getting the point. The process is the important part. It's not the end part you're getting to. And, and even in the industry, 16 years, it's not like you're an overnight success. You've said patience a couple times is a big piece to uh, recommendations you have for people that are just starting their entrepreneurial path. Can you talk about those 16 years, that path to an overnight success, the patience you had? What did you have to give up during that time period? Were there things that you <laughs> felt like you had to give up, whether it was moving to different places, whether it was time with people you want to spend to or whatever it was? But um, any things that you would did come to mind as entrepreneurs are starting to figure out, do they want to do this or not? What did you have to get a, give up to get here? Yeah, well, that's a that would be a long discussion. But <laughs> so I never look back and I look forward, really, to be honest. But I think I definitely worked very, very hard. And I didn't really know the essence of balance in work. Um, it took me a while to really kind of figure that out. And, uh, you know, now that I'm married, I'm, I'm, I continue to figure that out, right? I mean, and, and I think that, We'll keep reminding you if you're not. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, that's good news, right, of, of, of being married, right? So, look, I mean, I, th- I think that we all make sacrifices, right? And I think ultimately, if you're going to follow a passion, you are going to have to make sacrifice. You're going to have to spend those late nights learning things and reading things. And if you're voracious, as I am, you know, absorbing information and learning about different industries, I'm constantly kind of interested in data and, and, and reading and and meeting with people and really understanding these different industries and understanding the creativity behind ideas, right? So you got to have that passion. But but for me now, and, and you know, maybe this is a cliche saying, right? You know, going to work to, to every day is a, is a pleasure, right? Because I do what I love, right? So I think there certainly were sacrifices along the way to find that path, cultivate that path, and get to a certain level. I by no means, by the way, I'm slowing down. If anything, I'm speeding up now in my life 16, oh, 16 years later. <laughs> so. You talked about curiosity and it ends up not being work, right? So the curiosity and where you're spending time learning, reading, talking to people, as your career gets more and more successful, that doesn't feel like work anymore. So you talking to artists, talking to chefs is probably more fun to you than it is you know, work, but that's giving you inspiration in a number of different areas. Yeah. Last question for you. Your most memorable day in your career, now, whether it was, you know, in your first six months or it was a, you know, a project that you finished, maybe it was somebody you mentored and you had an impact with, but do you have a most memorable day in your career? Even if it was a good, funny story that might be worth sharing. I have many, which is good. I mean, but I'll tell you the most memorable days are the day that we groundbreak on a development and the day that we cut the ribbon on a development. There is nothing more fulfilling than saying, you know, I've worked X years on this thing through, you know, blood, sweat, and tears through, you know, ideas, visioning, financing, business plans to get to put a shovel on the ground. And then actually when you finish it and you lay that last piece of stone or whatever it is, and you cut the ribbon and you say, wow, this is now a living, breathing thing. There's nothing to me more incredible, uh, you know, than going through that whole birthing experience, I guess, if you want to kind of use an analogy and, and kind of bringing the baby to fruition, because even at that point, then the baby needs to grow up, right? So there's a whole process after that. But that whole process of really bringing an idea that's on paper and actually creating something tangible that's, that's up and running is, is just phenomenal. So. Well, you know, it's, um, and we have a number of friends in common in the, the real estate development business. And I, and I always say to them, I'm like, for me, I, I'm in financial services. Everything I sell is like paper and air. It's really not, not anything tangible. And to see you change skylines of cities, to see this idea that you had, this creation in your head and actually 
come to fruition in this, this tangible piece that you know is going to impact so many different people, but you could actually look at it or show your kids and uh, show family members afterwards, I think is such a cool piece to, to the business you're in. And uh, I appreciate all the time. Hopefully uh, people get a lot out of this call, but I, I loved how you talked about being curious and courageous and hitting a number of pieces there and reminding everybody that, uh, that entrepreneurship is a patient process and it takes a while to be successful. So Kapal, I appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Great chatting with you. Awesome. I appreciate you listening to the Youpreneur podcast. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and also share the podcast for people you think might find it interesting. Along with that, if you're an entrepreneur or thinking about becoming a business owner, a great resource to take a look at is our partners at SCORE, where you see retired executives being able to help mentor new budding entrepreneurs. You can find them at SCORE.org, or in particular, we're in a partnership with Broward SCORE if you're in South Florida. Along with that, check us out on our Instagram. It's Upreneur. That's Upreneur with a U, not Y-O-U. That U stands for the University of Entrepreneurs, here to be able to give you and learn from the best and the brightest of entrepreneurs here in Florida. I appreciate you listening. Have a great day.